Second Peter today. Turn your Bibles open with me to Second Peter chapter one. I want to just for one message uh, step away from Hebrews for something that the Lord has really laid on my heart to bring today. And it comes to us from the second epistle of Peter to the churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 11. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, Virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so and an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, may the Lord add the blessing to the reading and the hearing of His holy word. Well, regarding this letter that Peter is writing, the second one he's writing as inspired by the Holy Spirit, The dating of this letter is somewhat interesting to lead into really the theme that I want us to operate under today of growing in grace. You see, the church has historically believed that this letter was written during a time, Nolan, when Peter was under great persecution. Uh, According to chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, Peter is alluding to his future near martyrdom. Uh, Many believe, and I hold to this position, at least from the historical records of Eusebius, that Peter was murdered under the reign of Nero, the emperor Nero, as he was crucified upside down. And so little ones in the church understand the importance of that. What you're reading is a letter that Peter's writing as he knows he's about to be martyred for being a Christian. But... There's more to this context to help us to come into our message today, and that is the audience that Peter was writing to. Peter wasn't the only one that was under the stress and the duress of about to be martyred. Also, his audience knew something of persecution as well. We know this from the first letter that he wrote to this audience, where in 1 Peter chapter 1, which is just a few pages back in your Bible, he identified them this way. He says, I'm writing to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, the reference to them as strangers wasn't because Peter didn't know them. It was because through violent force, 
they had been made strangers into these uttermost parts of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the country Turkey. And so knowing all of this contextual background, this stress, this duress that these Christians were under, and Peter himself, the apostle, let us ask this question, what could be rightly considered the main theme of this letter that is being written by this battled, wearied, persecuted apostle to a scattered, persecuted church. What does he want them to stress upon him, A.J.? What, what, what is it he wants to communicate above all other things? Well, I believe that you see it in your notes there provided. It's not just one theme. It's not just one thing he wants to stress to this church before he departs in martyrdom in the name of Christ. There's actually two. The letter largely deals with a theme of the necessity to grow spiritually, to continue to grow as one of Christ's followers. And then he deals with the danger of false teachers. And they're connected in this way. Many scholars believe that what the false teachers were doing that were harmful, and i.e. false in nature, was coming into the churches and teaching them that there was no future judgment. And, of course, with no future judgment, there would be a promotion of lasciviousness, meaning that, you know what, um, there's really no need for me to be concerned about sin. There's no really no need for me to be concerned about a necessity to grow spiritually, because, after all, if there's no judgment, well, then that's taken care of, Right? And so he deals with these two things, false teachers and the necessity to grow spiritually. And really, he sums up these two themes perfectly in the the very last um, portion of this letter. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Grow in the grace. And that's, that's something active, right? That's a duty. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And then he expounds that charge to them to grow in grace in chapter 1, where we're going to look at today. And then in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Beware of being led astray by sinful and false teachers. And he largely expounds that in chapters 2 and 3. And so what I want us to deal with today under the title, Grow in Grace, I want us to deal largely with the first theme, this necessity of growing in the grace of Christ. Well, how are we going to do that here in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 11? As you see in your sermon notes there, I propose to you that first we consider verses 1 through 4 of examining the spiritual blessings that he is describing under a heading that I'm going to call spiritual resources that we as believers have been given by God in Christ and uh, equipping us, giving us resources to do what he challenged us to do in verse 5 down through 10. Right? So what does he do first? He first shows us what God through Christ has done for us before he even starts talking about diligence, before he even starts talking about examination, doesn't he? So we're going to look under that, under spiritual resources. And then secondly, in verses 5 through 10, we want to look at what he's calling us to do under the aspect of growing spiritually or growing unto maturity. And where there is, we will say this before we get started, where there is no growth, where there is no giving of diligence, Where there is a weakness and a lack of progressive maturity, know emphatically that it will affect the assurance of our salvation and it will result in our hearts and our minds doubting and finding themselves in despair. When we don't give diligence, when we don't seek to grow in the areas He's going to challenge us to grow, if we accept status quo, then we can fall into this ditch of being robbed of our joy, of the blessings we've been given in verses 1 through 4. So let us begin under the heading of spiritual resources that God through Christ has given us as the inspired Apostle Peter is amplifying for us. Here in this introduction of his second leader letter, Peter describes himself, doesn't he, as an apostle. And this is a position of honor. He is an apostle. But note the language also there in verse number 1, beloved. 
Also, he uses an additional term to state his position, not just one of honor, but of a servant. And so we have a description of the Apostle Peter as one of honor and one of humility. Isn't this echoing what we heard from John the Baptist when he didn't want to even baptize Jesus because he saw himself so lowly as being even worthy to uh, perform such an act? Well, this, I believe, is, as you see in your notes, the first spiritual resource that we are given. And that is a servant's spiritual attitude. A servant's attitude, one of humility. The term servant is important to understand as meaning literally in the Greek, one who is in bondage to another. And here it is interesting, don't you think, when considering the concept of having spiritual resources or spiritual blessings given to us, made available through uh, Christ to live the Christian life, that we are called to the attention of having a spiritual servant's attitude being owned by another immediately. A servant does not do what he or she wants to do. They're always in submission to their master, aren't they? This, of course, should never be considered, and Peter doesn't want us to consider it this way, as a weary, burdensome, or dreadful service, because Christ is the one referred to here as the master whom Peter is a servant unto. And as you see in your sermon notes, Jesus told his followers, he would have told Peter, he would have understood this in Matthew 11.30, that his yoke, his servant, the, 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 the service that he demanded, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And as you see in your notes, why is this the case? Because the yoke of Christ is constructed from that of grace, which he and us, uh, well, I'm sorry, which he has given to us as his people, we voluntarily, joyfully place it upon our necks, Levi. And that's why being a servant to Jesus by someone who's really tasted the fountain of his forgiving grace, they don't see what he calls them to do as something that they have to begrudgingly do. They don't have to see it, Nolan, as healthy boundaries in their lives as things that are keeping them from really living. No, it's constructed as grace, as we mentioned in the true repentance, the nature of true repentance. They've been granted forgiveness of that, which what was choking them to death. And they place this yoke of servanthood upon them, and thus they have humility in their lives. What a blessed resource. I don't know about you, Brother Aaron, but I wasn't too quick to listen to any man prior to being a Christian. Sometimes, if I would be honest before you, I still have trouble, Brother Chris, doing it now. Oh, but one of the great spiritual resources we have to grow in grace later, what Peter's going to call us to do, is that we need to grow. That we are people who are to be of a humble heart, right? Because God, through the power of His Spirit, has converted us, He has changed us, and He's made us servants. What a beautiful, blessed spiritual resource that He has given to His people. Notice in verse 1, the second, what I'm calling spiritual resource, leading up to the admonition to grow, to grow in grace, and that is that we have equality in all spiritual things, even with the apostles. Now let me be careful to clarify what I'm saying. Look at verse number one with me. Peter says that he's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to them, that have obtained like precious faith with us. Well, who's the us? He's talking about himself, the other apostles, and everyone else who were believers. With us, the righteousness of God, and notice the pronoun, our Savior. Not his Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The thing that brings Peter, the apostle, together with these other servants of Christ, giving the spiritual resource of humility in the first century, as well as us today, is that they and us have, like Him, this like precious faith. Now listen to this. The word precious here in the Greek is actually made up of two separate words. It carries with it the idea of being equal and also honor. Equal and honor. The word is often used or was often used in the ancient world with strangers and foreigners who were given equal and honorary citizenship status in a particular city. 
So think about that. Peter's saying the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, who uh, performed miracles. You remember this. I know I'm already getting in some hot water by saying that. But what I'm trying to tell you is, Peter's telling them, before he even gets to talk about them and challenging them to grow in grace, admonishing them, he says, you have the same precious faith that I have. Just because I'm an apostle, I don't have more of it than you. You have the same faith. That is why some modern translations, I think it's a good translation, they'll render or translate this passage in verse 1 as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The Holy Spirit is teaching here that Peter's faith and that of the other Christians is equal in substance and privilege. In other words, you have the same stuff as the Apostle Peter to help you, to aid you, to guide you, to grow in the graces that he's going to challenge you for in verses 5 and 10. Never think because you are struggling with sanctification. Never think that you are struggling with a particular habitual sin in your life. It's because you have been given less of a measure of the faith that someone next to you, perhaps that you don't see all their ugly dark spots, has. Because biblically speaking, that's not correct. You have as much of privilege and substance as faith as the Apostle Peter. Peter knows this. And this is why he can admonish you <laughs> as another brother to grow, to kick through barriers, to challenge you, to make your call and election sure. As you see in your notes, here we learn that there is no such thing as first class and second class Christians in spiritual, racial, male, female distinctions between uh, each other in the church. That's hogwash. We all have obtained a faith and equal standing with that even of the apostles. Then, dear child of God, immediately value this as one of the resources that's available to you to grow in grace. Value what? This understanding that you get no less than complete equality of the power of the faith that Peter had to after he denied the Lord Jesus three times, repented and came back and gave his life for Christ's cause. We do not have substandard substances of faith but the very same faith as not only Peter, but all of the faithful throughout redemptive history who never turned back. Never turned back. Well, let us move here to verse number 2. And we see thirdly that we are given a servant's spiritual knowledge. What does this mean? He says, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's here in verse number 2 that we come to understand the significance of this key word knowledge. In a very real way, it could be easily said that this is an overarching theme in Peter in connection with the false teachers and growing, the necessity of growing because this phrase knowledge comes up over and over again. True knowledge of God and Christ, he says, notice in the text, it produces, or in our translation, it multiplies grace and peace. And what's more to the concept for our consideration today about knowledge being described here is that it also helps promote godliness. Do you see that in the text? It helps us to live this knowledge, whatever it is we're about to see. And so at least admitting that and seeing that on the surface, we have to stop and we have to really pay attention to what is this spiritual resource of knowledge that has the ability to produce, aid, multiply grace and peace in my life to answer the admonition in verses 5 and 10? Well, I gave you in your notes something to help us understand the importance of this knowledge being referred to. The Greek word translated knowledge here does not mean a mere intellectual understanding of some truths even though that is encompassed and included in the Greek word. Nor does it mean the ability just to recite facts from an encyclopedia. But it is a spiritual reality made real to our inner man through the gospel truths that, it, that takes place at the time of our conversion that creates and promotes 
a greater closeness to our Creator and God the Father. That's the knowledge that's being described here. And Peter's saying that you have been given that in so much as you've been converted. A, cate- a memorized catechism of the truths of Jesus is not the knowledge that he's talking about here. A systematic representation of the divine nature of Jesus in the triune Godhead is not what Peter's talking about here. He'll use that word knowledge later on. But what he's saying right now to promote in us an understanding before He even calls us to give diligence is make sure that through the knowledge of God and our Jesus Christ that you have this. You've tasted this. You have actually, as we talked about in the reading this morning in Matthew chapter 3, heard the prophet, heard the minister, heard the preacher cry, heard your mother and father, Sunday school teacher, brother, sister, whoever, to repent and believe the truth of yourself in the condemnation of your sins, and you've seen the ugliness of it against the thrice holiness of God, and that there actually has been a knowledge birthed in you that you're the one that put Jesus upon the cross, and it's crushed you, but then you've seen through the spiritual knowledge that Peter's talking about here today, the love of God through the cross, and you've embraced that knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. Now, some of my Reformed brethren, they don't like this language of experientialism. They think we're going to get off into, you know, weed fields somehow or another of subjective feelings. But brothers and sisters in here who have truly tasted the love and the grace of a holy God at the cross of Christ, I don't do this often, but show me your hands if you experience the forgiveness of that. Amen. Amen. It did what was said of those in the book of Acts. It pricked your heart. That's the knowledge that Peter's talking about here. Now put that in your back pocket when he calls in verse 5 to admonish you. You've been to the cross. You truly have seen the wickedness of your sins. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He's unfolded before your eyes the grossness of the reality of what took place, but also the glory at the cross. What a spiritual resource. What a spiritual gift to help us to do what He calls us later. Look at verse 3. We have another one. What else do we need, right? But yet it produces more things. We see in verse 4, through this knowledge we have also strength. The verse says that by Christ's divine power, He has given unto us all things. Here in verse 3, we see the grave importance now of our need to grow later on in the text in things of spiritual maturity because now the apostle moves to the practical issue of our personal conduct. Notice, look at the text. He says, He has given unto us all things that pertain unto living life and living not only life, but godliness, a godly life. He first tells us that God has given us by His divine power through Christ everything that we need that pertains to life and godly living. This simply, but very powerfully, church, means that whatever it takes to live a reverently, a loyally, and an obedient life toward God has through that experiential knowledge that I just talked about, which is conversion, it's been given to us. That's what Peter's saying right here. Whatever it takes, Chris. Now, Peter doesn't say it's easy. He doesn't say that, as he knows from his own experience, he's going to have scraped knees and scraped elbows and look like a fool sometimes, right? But he does clearly communicate to us, whatever it does take, we have it. All things means all things. Whatever that power, I'm calling it a spiritual resource in the sense of strength knowing, whatever it takes, Peter's teaching from Scripture, we have it. We don't have less than him. We don't have less than Paul. We don't have less than the super saint that we put on a pedestal sometimes in churches. We all have what it takes. In other words, you see in your notes, we don't need to be searching like some in evangelicalism does for some sort of second blessing or higher anointing or a secret hidden knowledge that we're supposed to be knocking on the door and asking God for all the time. No, no, no. Stop wasting God's time. 
Stop wasting your time. In Christ, Peter's teaching upon conversion, you have received the supply of what it takes to begin to yield obedience toward the Savior. And Peter today wants us in verse 10 to challenge us to do that. Again, he doesn't say it's easy. He doesn't say it's a light switch, you turn it on and it just happens. He's just wanting you to know to don't ever, before I leave this world, I know I'm about to be martyred. Dear Christians, grow, grow, grow. Don't ever think that you are less than what you really are. You have been redeemed, you have a new nature. This is why you have left the old man behind and you're walking in the newness of life. He's wanting them to stress and understand this because he knows when he leaves, it's not going to be easy. It is so easy for us between verse 1 and verse 11 in the ups and downs of our journey on sanctification to begin to default and think as if we don't have what it takes. We begin to think like that. But in Christ, God, the text is saying He has given to us whatever it takes. Notice in verse 4, He amplifies all of this of we've been given whatever it takes in connection with Christ's divine nature. And I'm just calling this aspect of a spiritual resource that we apply in verses 5 through 10 as really our spiritual reality of where we're at. Whether we feel like it or not, this is what Peter's saying. All our spiritual growth, I believe, will hinge upon this reality, whether we embrace it or we forget it or we dismiss it. And it is this we have the imputation of Christ's righteousness, His perfect righteousness, granted to us upon conversion through faith, and we are brought into this fellowship or made partakers of His divine nature. Whether you feel like it, whether on certain days you don't believe it, this is what took place. If, when you raised your hand earlier, your heart was pricked through the Gospel and you really truly come to the cross of Christ, And you tasted that heavenly gift of forgiveness of your sins. You have been made a fellow partaker of Christ's divine nature. This concept of being a partaker of His divine nature. We have to say this nowadays, don't we? It is in no way communicating that we are somehow little gods. I've heard some ministers try to preach this text and make it sound as if we're little Jesuses. They just get lost in the hayfields and it's confusing to where people believe that they actually have some sort of divinity. This is not teaching that we have in some way been granted a measure of divinity. No, we are sinners saved by grace, still sanctifying, still growing, still needing faithful ministers to remind us, A.J., of these truths. Just like Peter was doing. Because again, he knew what was going to happen when he was martyred. He knew what these false teachers was going to convince them, begin to convince them of. Um, about the, you know, no, no judgment. But rather what the Spirit is wanting us to understand is that the fulfilled and the great and precious promises that are referred to through Jesus Christ, which by divine power and sovereign grace has been given unto us, now we are, beloved, in such close fellowship with Christ. Unlike Sister Maria, we were never before outside of the camp. To where we can say things like I've given you in your text today or in your sermon notes, such things as Paul would say, who himself was sanctifying, who himself was growing in grace. But listen how he described and thought being a partaker of this divine nature, being one who has tasted these heavenly gifts. He would say things like this in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I am crucified with Christ. My life, yes, I like certain things and everything, but it's not all about me. My spiritual reality is is that I'm here only as a servant yielded under Christ's service. And He lives through me. What about Philippians 1.21? Look at your sermon notes. For me to live is Christ. And Paul says again, he says, to die is to gain. 
The old preacher yesterday at the meeting was stressing this point. He says, oftentimes when we read Paul, it seems as though Paul lived more in the eternity than he did here. That's because this partaking of the divine nature, this reality that he embraced, that no matter what he went through in this life, there was for him an eternal glory waiting, not by his righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, which had been imputed unto him, making him a partaker of his divine nature. For the sake of time, we'll go over John 15 there. Uh, verse 4 you have in your notes. And move on to our sixth spiritual resource, and that is... Oh, those in here who have walked with the Lord any amount of time, you know how precious this is. And this is spiritual liberty, knowing that you have, the text says, escaped the corruption. Escaped the corruption. Look at verse 4. Whereby we are given unto us exceeding great precious promises, that by these we might be made partakers of the divine nature, having, past tense, escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In other words, through our engrafting, as we're understanding, this spiritual blessing that we've received through Christ and being brought into this fellowship with such a divine nature, we are described here as those who have escaped. We've we've made it away. (laughs) We were in bondage, but we've made it away. Through faith, we're to understand, we're to benefit from the reality that we are free and we are not bound to the very things in this present life which are altogether opposed to our new nature. If we've tasted these things, he's saying you have escaped. We are, in other words, at true Christian liberty. The word corruption there carries with it the idea of death and decay in the Greek. You've escaped, you've escaped that death and that decay. Sunday after church, the car that was parked in our parking lot, for those who were here last Sunday, it had been showing up there for a couple of Sundays. And, you know, hey, let's just be honest, folks. We're not packing out the parking lot, right? So, hey, you know what? We'll be nice neighbors. But then last Sunday, what happened? We came and the car's all up on jacks, no tires. Well, that's now getting dangerous, isn't it? Little ones could be over there playing around, car fall on them. So I had to go over there and talk to the folks. And of course, I'm going over there to give them the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps maybe you try to do a self, do it yourself, break job off YouTube and you got into it and it's too much for you to handle and you couldn't finish it. Just tell me what's going on with the car. Can we be of help in any way? Guys, I walk up there on that porch and this poor soul over here has a snake twisted all down her arm. Markings all over her body. Piercings all over her face. Her boyfriend with her on her front porch. Same description. You know what I mean? And we get to talking. And then she wants to proceed to tell me, you know, about seances and graveyards and stuff and how she's involved in witchcraft and things like that. And I said, Amen. It opened the door wide open to the things of the gospel, <laughs> to spiritual matters. She understood, Brother Grizz, that there's more than just this material dirt that's around us, right? And that's why I was there. And I bring all of that up just to say one thing I identified with her at one point in the conversation, I don't remember what it was. It was almost as if her and her boyfriend were trying to scare me or something. I said, well, guys, I said, uh, there's not much that you're telling me that I wasn't myself some way or another connected before I come to the truth of Jesus and he opened my eyes. I said, all these things you're searching for. Would you please just come and hear the truth of the gospel? Would you come and hear the truthful claims of Christianity? That's what we have at our church. I said, we're sinners saved by grace. Much of the things, not all of them, but many of the things, oh yeah, I was in the bondage of that death, that corruption as well. Foolishly, ignorantly, right? Not proud of it, ashamed of it. Ashamed of that knowledge. I said, but true Christianity is not afraid of any questions. Come over. He was, he was asking me, of course, about giants and the Bible and the book of Enoch and all that you know, stuff that you, Christians are supposed to you know, be afraid of. No, no, no. Come and ask questions. We want to show you the truth. Well, Peter's communicating here today, isn't he? That through the experiential saving power of God through the gospel of Christ, we have escaped that death and that corruption. What a spiritual blessing. Even though, dear brother and sister here today, you may not on your journey of sanctification be exactly where you want to be, you can definitely say, if you have come out of death and corruption, you are not where you once were. Amen? 
All right. So there's hope, isn't there? To walk into verse 5 here in a moment. You know that you have experienced liberty. You know that you have new affections toward God and His ways. You can honestly say with Paul in Galatians 1.4 that I have been freed from this present evil world. The word escape suggests this terrible power that, that held and formerly enslaved us in all of its corruptions. But the way the word's being used here, it's, def- it's pointing to a definite act to where there was an experience in your life where you rebuked, you renounced that worldly attitude of death and corruption. Has that taken place in your mind? Had, did that take place in your conversion? A worldly attitude I would identify as that which does not use the Scripture or is concerned to use the Scripture as a compass. One another brother softly brings something that is going on and they try to bring Scripture to bear upon him and say, oh, you're just being, I don't want to hear that, I don't want to hear that. Have you escaped really? Really? I don't, I don't know. Me and Brother Mark were talking about it in the foyer here. I always want to be at least willing to sit down and hear where someone's, if they see something in my life, I want to hear what, where are you getting out of the Word? Um, just because you think it doesn't mean it's objective, but let's talk about it in the Word of God, right? Why? Because I've escaped, Brother Grizz, that death and that corruption of doing things my way, thinking my own way, inventing in my own imagination, what's acceptable, things of that nature, right? The deceitful promise and the lure, the allurement, which appeals to these remaining, I'm parking here for a moment, the deceitful promises and the allurement which appeals to these remaining corrupted desires that we may possess and are are, are yet to be completed sanctified areas of life are instruments upon which the old death and corruption wishes to draw us back into its prison cell. I was doing hay recently and it was amazing to me. I was within 10 feet on my tractor, this loud machine and the hay bale going, you know, clackety-clack, clinkety-clink. And there was this chicken hawk on the post 10 feet away from me just staring at me and you know I got a real good close look at him and as I was looking at him I said man you got a mean hook for a beak and I looked at his talons he had you know and I thought I feel sorry for a little field mouse that would get swooped up by that that's what the world uses in its death and corruption to try to hook onto us Nolan and all of its allurements and draw us back into that if we've truly been set free we understand fully the harm and the infliction that those talions have in us and why would anyone who would want to be set free or who had been set free from that want to dance want to play with any of that corruption and death Well, the reality of our inheritance and the great and precious promises that are being mentioned here by which we partake of a new nature, by which we have escaped those depths of corruptions, we can honestly say, I do think differently. I do uh, react differently. I do hate those things. It at least has to bring some peace and comfort to us in knowing that something's happened in our life. There is some power there. Perfectly exhibited? No. But a trace? Yes. Well, let's move to our second heading. Quickly running out of time here. Such resources as having these promises of God, sharing in Christ's divine nature through conversion, and having been granted freedom, no longer do I have to think and act like a prisoner. These are to be utilized by us now, we're going to see by Peter, to cultivate spiritual growth as Christ's covenant people. Now in verses 5-11, through there are listed for us some very particular spiritual fruits that we are given as a duty to grow in as Christians. And beloved, when we ignore the call of our duty to grow in these areas, then sadly many in the faith are left barren, unfruitful, and as a result, they lack much assurance of their salvation and the truth of the promises that Christ once gave to them. And so then, I say this slowly but carefully, the connection between what we have learned in verses 1-4, through that we honestly can say, yes, I've tasted that. 
I have truly been granted by the sovereign power of God through Christ that which is communicated in those spiritual resources. The connection of exercising what you have been given through Christ and growing spiritually and your daily joy, your daily comfort, and your assurance as His children cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated. There is no such thing as receiving verses 1-4 through And putting the ticket in the back pocket and say, you know what, I'm just going to kind of settle down here. That's not, guys, that's not what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to grow, grow, grow. Even when it hurts, even when... I was recently talking to someone who came out of uh, a horrible ordeal and they had to do physical therapy. And they said, I dreaded going to physical therapy. It was actually you. I remember you were visiting her house you were talking about. He's like... You know, you got to hear Brother Grizz tell the story, but he's talking about this big old nurse that would come in and, and lift him up from giving him a bear hug from behind and saying, you're going to walk today. You're going to do this exercise. And he said every bone in his body ached and he just dreaded to it, you know. Beloved, that's how sometimes when we come to verse 5 now in this transition of 10 and you got a man of God sitting here who's just the messenger to say this is what he's telling us to do. You're like, really, man? I don't feel like putting one fourth, one foot forward in this call of duty because I'm hurting all over. Stop focusing on your own feelings. Focus on what verses 1 through 4 says and now heed the admonition of 5 through 10 and by His grace, sister, let God, right? You guys are going to kill me for this illustration later. Put the bear hug on you and help you to move forward in your physical therapy, spiritually speaking, of course. Notice verse 5, the the call to duty, the giving of all diligence, he says. Look at verse 5. Besides this, besides all these blessings that I've explained to you, give all diligence. Nolan, little ones in the church, remember who's writing this, a man who's about to die and he knows he's about to die. In the Greek that's translated in the English, give all diligence, that's the strongest way that He can communicate to us. This is a life and death matter. Give all diligence. We see here Peter calling us to duty to engage now the task of personal spiritual growth, particularly in seven areas. And they're not, uh, Audrey, to be considered seven areas like one's more important. Like he's going to list virtue. Oh, that's the best one. So if I get that one nailed down, the other six, eh, I kind of work on those when I want to. No, it's horizontally. He's wanting us to, the men and women of God, the, the sons and daughters of Christ, he's wanting us to horizontally take all of these things and cultivate a maturity in our life of these things. And notice that it starts with faith. It all starts with faith. I believe I put this in your... Notes, let's consider faith before we even get into the virtues in two ways. I've spoken much about the first view of faith. There's a beginning and a starting point to our faith. It's the moment you could say that you repented, that God granted you the grace and the power through His Spirit to understand your need of the Savior, your need of forgiveness. And you received at that point the forgiveness offered to you by Christ and you rested upon Christ for your only hope and the only claim you have to ever enter in the pearly gates of heaven. That's the first aspect of faith mostly that's referred to. Oh, but there's a second one too. And it's where we most feed upon it, rely upon it. See in your notes, there's also of course an aspect of this faith that is also continual Or you could say it's sustaining. Meaning that there's a daily trust. There's a daily faith exercised which we possess and is the very strength of our Christian lives. It all starts with this sort of faith. It had a beginning in time, space, and history with you experiencing your elected justification from eternity past. And then moving forward, it's a continual supply that you must exercise falling back not on your own feelings, but falling back on what you know to be true at the cross of Christ when He revealed and opened your dead and hardened heart. Well, these virtues are built upon that. If you don't have that, just close your Bible up right now and we'll talk to you after church because you've got to have that first. You have to first see yourself in need of a Savior and taste that forgiveness at the cross. So for the rest of this, this is really for the house of God that we're talking about here now. 
He wants us for those who have tasted this. Listen to, give all diligence. I'm about to die. Great stress persecutions will come upon you. Do I want you to figure out how to build weapons? Do I want you to figure out how to overturn the Roman Greco governmental society? No, no, no. He points to what? Spiritual graces that He wants us to grow in. What a lesson for us today in our own predicament we are in the West. The first one is virtue, verse number 5. The first quality mentioned here is a rare word in the biblical Greek. And it means excellence. It means excellence. It means excellence in a task that's been assigned to you. Now boys, let's just be honest in the church here. I was there when I was young one time and you know, I'd get a task to be given to me and I would just say I wasn't very virtuous about doing the task. Hey, you know, Doug, take care of this. Take out the trash, do that. I, I didn't do it excellently, but I got it done. But, I, but, you know, my heart wasn't in it really. You know what I mean? Well, that's what he's saying here. I want you to move forward in your faith with excellence. Where's your heart? Is your heart in it? You, you've been saved from death and corruption. You've escaped that. Now excel. Be virtuous in your life. There is, sometimes people will take this uh, aspect or this word and make it all about moral virtue. It does have in the Greek overtones of morality to it. And let's just be honest, you've heard me say this before, there's nothing more dehabilitating in your spiritual growth than issues of immorality. Nothing. That's why in the New Testament, immorality, particularly related to sexual things, is spoken about more than any other sin because it's so dehabilitating. Give all diligence as if your life depends upon it to excel in the task of growing in grace in connection with, but not exclusively, things of a moral nature. The teenagers in the church. Notice that I said it's not exclusively in a moral nature, but it does have implications of a moral nature. You are growing up in a sensualized, perverted culture that is putting in front of you a false understanding of your sexuality, which your mother and fathers can disciple you and walk you through. But as your pastor, I just want to tell you, heed the words of Peter here. If you claim the name of Christ, understand that nothing will rob you more of what Christ has for you in all of His blessings than sexual sin. You will be tempted. You, you, you will be curious. But oh, hear the words of an older man in front of you now. Don't ever approach that sin. Because it will, like that hawk I described earlier, put talons in you that you may never escape from. And even if you do, will leave dark scars within your soul. Well, He calls us, oh, give all diligence to grow in virtue, but also knowledge. Well, He already told us that. Is He repeating Himself? Look at verse 5. We have knowledge. Our hearts as Christians, He's telling us here, they can't be separated from our minds. This word knowledge here is different than what was in verses 2 and 3. It denotes really a science of learning, of knowing facts. There's no such thing in the church as a Christian who becomes saved, Brother Grizz, and doesn't want to know more about the truths of Jesus. Amen, Brother Mark? You become a Christian, you want to constantly be growing. We were all chuckling at the Friday night fellowship because you know who, boy, when I first got converted, man, I just could, I was like a sponge. I wanted to know everything, right? Uh, J. Vernon McGee, Pastor Jason, listen to old J. Vernon McGee, and I listened to every J. Vernon McGee tape. I, Hank Kennegraff, you guys remember him? He's Greek Orthodox now. But back in the day, Hank Kennegraff, man, he'd give you the facts and he'd go through the Bible, you know? This is the knowledge that he's talking about. Have you fallen in a rut, perhaps, dear beloved, one of you in here today, of where, hey, I, you know, I mean, I know I've used all the illustrations today, but I mean, we stick pretty close to the text here, and I probably exasperate you guys a lot of times. You, you might be guilty and faulty of thinking, you know what, on Sunday's morning, boy, I tell you what, Brother Doug, he just downloads on us. I don't need to read anything else through this Sunday. Well, that's not what Peter's saying here, is he? Well, how are you growing in your knowledge of the faith? that he described in verses 1-4 through that you've tasted. Today, in our order of worship, I've given you some sister churches that we're praying for. I've given you their websites. Go listen to their sermons. These are good, faithful men. I'm sure you have your own sermons you listen to. Little ones, this doesn't exclude you. 
Have you tasted the things of Christ? Have you come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? What are you filling your minds with? Is, is it the knowledge of the faith? Is it the knowledge of those who have went before us in the faith and the missionary stories? And all of us moms and dads, I know what you're thinking, Pastor Doug, we can't hardly find good stuff for our kids to read to fill their minds. But the point still stands, beloved. Peter is wanting us to grow, grow, grow in this sort of truthful knowledge. As it expands, it will help us to grow in our sanctification. Listen, guys, as your pastor, I... You hear me, I'm hesitant here because I don't want to get in too much trouble, but I just want to say, I say this often. Let us be more zealous, informed, and knowledgeable about the things of goodness, about the things of Christ that will immediately benefit our families in the local church and the gospel mission than we are about the all the intricacies of why the, boat, the election didn't go the way it was. Okay, I think that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm not saying that. But Peter's called us to grow in the knowledge of what is holy, not as what is base and of this world. And it will help us in our daily comforts, joys, and assurance. This is what he leads up to in verses 10 and 11. Moving on here, the next one, we're getting bogged down. Verse number 6. Notice the next thing that he wants us to take verses 1 through 4 and now give all the diligence that we grow in, and that is temperance. He lists his temperance, which is simply meaning self-control. This is not only to be exercised in food and in drink, but in every aspect of life. Temperance, self-control is always in connection, beloved, with what is lawful in God's Word. So whatever is lawful for me to be permitted to partake in, I'm to do it still with self-control. It's lawful for me, right? Friday night at the fellowship meeting, we had cookies to have one or two cookies. But it's not temperance of me to eat six or twelve, is it? It's just a practical application. Now, I see some smiles on the young ones' faces. Let me help you to understand the importance now why, at least in our house, and I'm sure knowing the moms in the church here, mom will tell you, hey, 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 one cookie. Not What is your mom doing there? Well, number one, she is obviously concerned about your health, Right? And she's also concerned, what? About you learning self-control. Listen to the law of your mother, the Proverbs teaches you. Listen and heed it, because why? It's going to help you later on in life have a little bit of self-control in areas that you never thought eating, being told you need just one cookie would help you with. Right? But temperance, as Christians, our ethical understanding of our current reality as born-again disciples of Jesus yet not completely sanctified until the full consummation of our salvation when He returns to finally free us from this enslavement and bondage of the old nature, is understood as that which has to reign in by His grace our perverted and at times our sin-influenced instincts and desires. Christian Grow in temperance and self-control. Verse 6. We have the second one, which is patience. And I promise we're getting to the end here. From the habit and discipline of temperance and self-control comes forth patience. But there's a little bit of a difference here. As to where self-control is mastering that you know, which is within. Really, that is something by God's grace you can say, no, I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. There's a strong urge, there's a strong desire, but verses 1 through 4, I've tasted that, I tell you, I know that's right, I don't, I don't have to. That comes from within, the self-control part. But patience here, really, in this translation, I think it ought to be translated in, from what the Greek carries with it, the word to endure or suffer. And that comes from without. Peter wants them and wants us to understand as we're moving forward and some of these things that are very personal for us to grow in, that you have to grow in understanding that there are certain things outside of your control which is going to cause you pain and suffering and you are to be patient in those things. In other words, it would sound like this. I'm going to practice self-control because I see myself as a servant owned by another 
for His usefulness, and I will therefore daily demonstrate patience even if I have to suffer wrongdoing. The early Christians, they knew how to, didn't they? Suffer patiently. Peter wants them to grow in this. He wants them to understand how to handle afflictions because he knows with his own life what's going on, what's right around the corner. But notice also in verse 6, he wants them to grow in godliness for the sake of time. I will simply explain it this way. This grace that he wants them to continue to cultivate and foster, they already have it. Oh, but don't let it fall to the wayside. Is having a conscience about your life that always has your Father in Heaven at the center of it. And so when you go to make a decision, when you go to, you know, um, do anything, you always just have a reverential consciousness of God in your life. Peter doesn't want us to ever, I guess you could say, just be Sunday godly people. He wants to have, you know, Monday through Saturday, just an awareness of God's presence in my home and in my personal life. Don't ever become that one who can just flip the light switch on and off of, you know, oh, on Sunday I'm a little convicted about saying that, watching that, listening to that, speaking that way, being at that place. But Monday through Saturday, hey, you know, I can. I got freedom to do that or whatever. See, Peter's thinking, no, no, no. Cultivate and grow in your life at continual perpetual maturity and godliness that God is in the midst of everything that you do. Notice in the seventh verse, he wants us to cultivate and continue to grow in brotherly kindness. A reverence for God, as we just mentioned, being in constant awareness of our relationship with Him through Christ and always being careful to cultivate a proper respect toward God. It ought to organically produce a respect, a love, and a reverence for His people, and that is the church. True godliness, we see, cannot exist without brotherly kindness. This text is teaching us that there is something radically wrong with a religion or a confession of a Christian faith that is so selfish and so self-absorbed that it cannot find time to meet the demands of others in their life of the church. Brotherly kindness. It's not this, guys. Peter's not saying this. He's not saying when you see me at church, you put on a smile and you shake my hand and that's about the kindness you display to. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. He is talking about as you move forward as a church, outside pressures are coming, the government's going to come against you through the Roman arm, your family's going to turn on you, so forth and so on. You're going to have to roll up your sleeves and you're going to have to exhibit brotherly kindness to one another and help one another. Cultivate that. Grow in that. If we have, especially in America, with our picket fences and our privacy fences, we have to work on this as the church, don't we? As old Pastor Shea used to say, church, the phone works both ways. And you're going to get tired of me saying that, but it does. And, and I, I put myself on that pedestal. We're all busy in life, brothers and sisters. Oh, but you will be amazed as far as you grow in the cultivation of the graces that Peter is listing here. How much it helps you when you're exhibiting brotherly kindness. It's amazing. It's just a byproduct of some, some sort. Well, while he's telling us here to exhibit brotherly kindness, get involved and love one another within the body, notice also he expands that now to grow in the grace of charity, and that is love. Let's look at the last one here, verse 7. Love is the last link I have on my notes. In what we could call today Peter's golden chain of Christian virtues that he wants us to grow in. And it is the crowning mark of a Christian spiritual maturity, love, charity. There's a distinction here that we must recognize, which is this that in brotherly kindness we have a special love that only exists between us within the church. But the love that he's referring to here is different. It's a love that has a very specific purpose and it's much broader than just within the church. Of course, there's this love exhibited within the church, but he is specifically referring to agape love for the rest of our neighbors is what he is referring to here. 
And so the word love here denotes charity and love that is much broader. And he wants this first century church to make sure that they never grow cold, isolated. They never grow hard. And, even, and that's hard to do, isn't it, church? I mean, when you're getting arrows shot at you all the time for the name of Christ, it's very hard to love your enemy. It's very hard to see them as created in the image of God and wanting to seek out the welfare of their soul and try to talk to them. But until they commit the unpardonable sin, until they are spitting in your face and say, don't ever come back and talk to me again, then and only then let it be said we shake the dust off our feet and move on. Amen? But the difficult family member, the difficult witch neighbor next to us here at the church, Hey, no, knock, knock, knock. How come drop? I already got some information we're going to drop over at their church or at their house, I mean. You see? Why? Because I once was that enslaved, blind person in bondage to the darkness and the corruption that all Satan and his demons and all this world had to offer. I feel so sorry for that person. I don't hate that person. I don't look down on that person. God forbid, I definitely don't think I'm better than that person. Oh, how I wish. I could see the power, AJ, of God's sovereign grace manifested in her life. And guess what? He uses you and me to do that. That's why Peter says, grow in love. Grow in love. In today's societal media climate of the Twitter sphere, the Facebook sphere, news sphere, Satan is effectively growing in the hearts of Christians a hardness unlike I've ever seen. You hear people talking, and I understand the frustrations, beloved. Believe me, I get a little fired up too, but let it never be said of us that we, with people who are trapped in the blindness of sins, don't at least understand to a certain degree that we are no better than them, but by the grace of God. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. Our triune God, we come before You, Lord, just, Father, very humbled in a reminder, O God, of what You have done for us today in this text in verses 1-4. through Father, if there is any one of Your sheep here today, that, Lord, who are going through a valley, a trial in their life, whether it be through the world, the devil, or their own flesh, that, Father, these truths that we mentioned and we covered in verses 1-4 through four are but a distant memory to them. I ask, O Sovereign One, in the glories of heaven above, please send Thy blessed Spirit to prick the heart afresh. O, to whisper, Lord, again, the sweet counsel and the words that You first visited upon that weary saint when You brought them to the saving knowledge of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. O Lord, help us all no matter where we are at, whether we are down in the trench or we are safely walking on that pilgrim path. I ask God that You will take the admonitions in verses 5-10 through 10, and that You would give us fresh sails in our, in our fresh wind rather in our sails that You would, O Father, supply unto us that we described in our New Testament reading today a gift of repentance, a real spiritual gift to, Lord, look with eyes of not of defeatism, Lord, not to think as enslaved prisoners, but think as sons and daughters of the risen Christ. And, O God, take these words which are but mere men's words from My mouth And Lord, make them alive in the hearts of Your people. O Spirit of God, I ask that You would take these things and sear them with fire, as Peter talked about, upon the minds and the consciousness of Your people. Make them alive. I pray that we leave here today, that we would have a new pep in our step, that we would leave here different than what we came here today, and that, oh, we would recommit ourselves to the calling of following Christ in verses 5 through 10, where we perhaps have grown a little sluggish 
and even one of these seven things that He's called us to grow in, that, oh God, by the power of Your strength and by the word of Your promise, that You would help us. Father, forgive us of our sins. We come before You in the name of Christ. We confess that He is our only hope. Oh, that He is the only truth, the only way. And we ask, oh, please forgive us, wash us, purge us. As we come to the supper, be reminded that it is all finished at the foot of Calvary. Let the past be the past. Let our hands be upon the plow and by your grace, may we hold on as you pull it forward. Bless the families here today, O God. Bless these young people. Then help us, we pray. Be thy people, the salt and the light that you've called us to be in this day and age for such a time as this. We bless you and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.